You guys know the expression, keeping up with the Joneses? Have you heard that before? Have you said it before? Yeah, yeah. For maybe some of the younger ones of us are like, what does that mean? But I don't think any of us were around in 1913 when that phrase or, or originated. 1913, there was a comic strip called Keeping Up with the Joneses. And this is the earliest record we can find of that expression. Keeping up with the Joneses. And what is this idea, keeping up with the Joneses? The idea is using your neighbors as a benchmark for how we're doing in life and then trying to keep up with them. You guys know how this plays out, right? Your neighbor mows his lawn. You look at his lawn. You look at your lawn. You go, oh, hey, honey, I cancel our plans. I got to mow the lawn today before Frank sees the state of my lawn. So you go out and you mow your lawn. Or maybe you see the beautiful landscaping of your neighbor and you think, maybe I'll plant flowers this year. This is like our fourth year in the home. We finally planted flowers. Well done, Meg. We're out of the newborn stage of like all our kids, right? And so like we planted flowers and they look good. And hopefully the frost, I don't know if it frosted last night. Frost warning, you guys see that? It's almost June. (laughs) Wow. Keeping up with the Joneses. They buy a new car, so you decide it's time for me to buy a new car, except you got one a year newer. And they buy a beautiful new push mower. It's like this electric thing or whatever, and it looks amazing. You go out, you buy a tractor, right? So I'll show them. Or they maybe buy a boat. So you go out and you buy a yacht. They go into debt. Well, too bad, neighbors, because I'm going into bankruptcy. Take that, Joneses. Our series is kind of like that, but not really much at all. You see, we're starting our new series today called Keeping Up with the Johnses. And we're going to look at the three epistles of John. First John, second John, and third John. And we are going to look at the Johnses as a guide for how we're doing at living out our faith. See, the Johns focus on Jesus— how Jesus is light, Jesus is love, Jesus is life, and Jesus is truth. And that's what we'll be unpacking in these four weeks together. This week and next week, we're going to look at First John. It's the longest by a long shot at a whopping five chapters. And then Second John's just one, and Third John's even smaller, just one. But it's going to be a good time. And uh, in case you didn't know— I snuck a super fun announcement into my message. How do you feel about that? I feel really good about it. We have a new reading and what's this writing plan? So you can find this bookmark um, online on our website. It's not on our website yet. In our email, it might be on the website sometime and on the back table and on the front entry. And I encourage you to grab one of these because we're going to read through scripture starting tomorrow together, uh, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. But then there's a bonus challenge. And this is the one I'm really excited about. I'm excited about reading it. But I'm really excited about this new endeavor called scripture writing. It's not a new endeavor. It's new to me. I just started this a couple weeks ago. The idea is writing out God's word. And it's, it's to do something slowly that we often do too quickly. And so I started uh, writing out 1 John this week. So here it is, 1 John, just word for word. You can notice I have sloppy handwriting. I'm not worrying about it. I have a few errors. I had to scratch out and correct it, all that stuff. And I'm just slowly going through writing out God's word. And I'm finding that I'm pondering over it as I write it. And I'm thinking about it a little bit more intentionally than I have before. So I would encourage you to give this a shot. 
uh, just for this plan. You have the reading plan. Follow the same one. You might need to go at a slower pace for First John. I'm enc- I encourage you to do that. Give it a shot. We have some notebooks. I forgot to put them out. I'll pull them out after service. But um, that's going to be fun. So we're diving in today to First John. Here's some background on this book before we open it up and read it. It was written by, well, what do you know, John. But the question is, what John was it written by? There's a lot of Johnses in the Bible. After all, there's five in the New Testament alone. So we have John the Baptist. We have John, father of Peter, the epistle, apostle, excuse me. Uh, We have John Mark, who's mentioned in Acts and is the likely author of the Gospel of Mark, but the Gospel of Mark was written by a guy named John, but he was commonly referred to as Mark. So we don't have two Gospels of John, which is good, because that'd be confusing. We have John, who's a member of the high priestly family, also mentioned in Acts. And then we have, ding, 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 Apostle John. He was the disciple. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three epistles of John. He also wrote everybody's favorite and not at all confusing book, Revelation. He was a first-hand witness to the most amazing three years in the history of the world because he was one of Jesus' disciples. He was referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Of course, it was he who wrote that. <laughs> so, but we believe it's true. We have context for reason to believe that there is true. Uh, he wasn't being cocky in that statement, but it was an actual true statement. He had a special relationship with Jesus. We know this because he was part of Jesus' closest three disciples. The three he set apart for an even higher calling than the other, tw- uh, the other in the twelve. Uh, that was Peter, James, and this John. He witnessed his death. Jesus revealed himself to him after his resurrection. He was there at the ascension, and he was there at Pentecost. John lived a life of complete faith to Jesus. And this first letter, that's what epistle means, after all, this first letter was written uh, around probably 85 to 90 AD, year 85 to 90. That's the best that, that scholars believe this was written. And likely while John was still in Ephesus, He spent some time in Ephesus before being exiled to the island of Patmos. We know that's where he spent the rest of his days. And the audience of this first letter of John, it was likely to several churches in the Asia Minor area. Uh, It'd be like where modern-day Turkey is today. But there were a lot of churches at that time because about 20, 15 years before that, Jerusalem was destroyed in year 70 AD. And so God's people, the early Christian church, they were scattered out all throughout the Roman Empire. And so John is writing this letter to a group of those churches with a purpose. You see, Christianity was now in its second generation, even the beginning of its third generation, and it had faced and overcome some persecution. We know about that when we read through Acts. But the biggest struggle for the beginning of the Christian church at this time was a declining commitment. See, many believers, they were starting to conform to the world's standards and failing to follow Christ wholeheartedly, and thereby they were compromising their faith. And not just that, but there were false teachers like everywhere. And Christianity was still pretty young, and some could say it was fragile. So John is doing his part to put believers back on track and encourage them to remember the heart of the gospel. 
which is about a God who is love. And he calls us to love him and love our neighbor likewise. So this letter is to help believers back on track, both then, but also now, to remind them and us of the heart of Jesus. So with that background, let's dive in. We're going to read most of the first half of uh, John, 1 John today. <laughs> That'd be long if we read the first half of the Gospel of John, huh? Cancel your daily plans if that was the case. We're going to start with 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. Now when he says we, he's referring just to the disciples. This isn't John and a bunch of people writing. He's saying, me and the other disciples, that's the we that have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. And we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. Pause there. This starts quite similarly to the Gospel of John, doesn't it? I mean, consider it. This first letter of John, he starts in verse 1 with, Jesus existed from the beginning. And the Gospel of John, he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this letter from John, he says, Jesus is the Word of life. He is life itself. And in the Gospel of John, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. So we start to see those parallels. And he reveals to his, his audience, hey, this is me. This is the John I'm talking about. I was an eyewitness to this incredible time with Jesus. As he says in verse 3, he, he wants to share with, with, with his audience what he and the disciples have seen and heard. What I tell you, what my friends tell you, it's all true. This is true. This is what happened. We know the power of real life experience, right? If you see something crazy happen, you see like a car accident on your way to church, you're likely going to tell all of us about that car accident when you arrive, right? Or if you uh, go to a new restaurant and you had the best meal of your life and the prices were right, you're going to tell everyone, unless you don't want people going there because it's your little secret, but usually you want to tell those things to other people about the amazing things that you saw. John is sharing about his amazing real-life experience. He had the frontmost seat to the most amazing events in the history of the world. And he spent the rest of his life telling others about it. This firsthand front row witness. As I mentioned, his audience was likely second and third generation Christians. They have heard about these things, likely, if they're in the Christian church, they have heard about them, but they didn't see them. 
They didn't see the events of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection. It's kind of like those stories you heard from your grandparents or your parents. Maybe about their childhood, their upbringing, or about grandpa's time in the war. Or maybe you have shared stories with your kids if you're of a certain age about when you remember when man landed on the moon and how amazing that felt and how incredible it felt and how our world just seemed to expand overnight. That's kind of what this was like. John is sharing all he saw for the purpose of including others into this life-changing, life-giving news, this life-giving fellowship he talks about that is the church, his community, the fellowship grounded in God, which he says in verse 4, brings true joy. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. A more accurate translation when you dive into the Greek is, that our joy may be made complete. That our joy may be complete. It's the same phrase Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 2, when he writes this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And Paul and John are talking about similar things here, about being of one mind, about sharing in community and fellowship with God's like-minded people, having that same love, that same spirit. They're talking about the power of shared belief and unity that can be found in Christian community. True Christian community, which is grounded in Christ Oh boy, does that foster joy. Absolutely. They're urging us to maintain that unity. Think of your own experience within God's community. When it it is at its best, man, there is nothing better. Joy abounds. Love flows. When God's people come together in like-minded unity. Let's move on, starting at verse 5. We're going to go through verse 10 of the first chapter here. This is the message we heard from Jesus, and we now declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So we already established John was an eyewitness, and now he's sharing some of what he witnessed and what he heard. And he heard directly from Jesus when Jesus said that God is light. In God, there is no darkness at all. 
Again, we are echoes of the gospel here. And what is light? Consider light. Consider a bright, pure light. I won't shine this in your eyes. We have a bright light, right? Pure light. It's pure, right? It cannot be tainted. It cannot be overcome by anything. Darkness will never overcome it. It brings life. Think about the plants and the flowers of the field. That light brings life. It lifts our spirits. For instance, uh, I don't often relax at home with no lights on, right? If you're relaxing, you want a couple house lights on because it brings you comfort. It lifts your spirits. In fact, light can bring you hope. If you're looking, and if you're outside, for instance, on a trail and it's dark, and you don't have a light with you, as soon as you spotlight, it gives you hope. Because light brings life. It also brings safety. We don't drive around without our headlights on. They bring us safety. It helps us see where we're going. It can guide us and direct us. And it repels the dark. It keeps it away. That's our Jesus Christ. He is our light. He is the light of the world. And if you find yourself in darkness, well, what's the first thing you do? Say you get up in the middle of the night, and uh, maybe not your own home, because maybe you're like a ninja and you know where all the things are, right? When you're in your own home, you're kind of, you feel like a ninja. It feels pretty good, right? You're like, ah, I know there's a thing there and a thing there. But maybe if you are like uh, staying at an Airbnb or a bed and breakfast or a hotel or whatever, you get up in the middle of the night, first thing you do is you go for the light switch. You grab your phone for the light or a little flashlight if you carry one because you're weird like me. <laughs> when you find yourself in the darkness, you seek the light. But in the darkness of this world, do we have that same instinct? Do we have that same instinct to seek the light? Do we seek the light or do we intentionally choose to stay in darkness? And that's what John is starting to talk about here. You see, in verse 6, he suggests that we don't always seek the light. And we know our own lives, uh, ah, that's the human experience, right? We don't want to sin, but we still sin. We don't want to do these things, but we end up doing them anyway. Go to Romans to really hear more about that from Paul. But there's this idea of light versus darkness. And there are those of us who say we're in fellowship with God, but then we go on living according to our sinful desires. Or we enter these seasons where we choose to walk in spiritual darkness going our own way rather than following his light and his path, his life-giving light. But John is reminding us of the good news of Jesus, that God is faithful. God is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If only we seek that light again. That is good news. That no one can ever stray too far that God won't be able to pull him back. That there is no corner or crevice of this world that God's light won't reach. And that is good news because Jesus is life. He is the light of the world. So we must ask ourselves, where in our lives right now might we need a little bit of light? Where might we have these corners and these crevices of our mind we're trying to keep from God or we're trying to, we just desperately need God's life-giving light in that area of our lives and we've 
try to shut him off from it. We know that Jesus is light. We also know Jesus Christ is living water. And so that's the question. What plants in our soul are withering and in desperate need of God's light and living water? Because where there is light, there is life. We continue with 2, verse 1 through 6. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So John says he's writing, this is like the third purpose he's given us of writing, so that we may not sin. But we also, as we reflected on those areas that need light in our lives, we realize, ah, and yet I still struggle with this. But John doesn't stop there. He calls us not to sin, but then he goes on to say, there is good news. Because there is one who is advocating for you, who is pleading on your behalf to the Father. That is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is truly righteous. And he gives us an everlasting hope and a freedom from that darkness. Our struggle is not in vain. Because Jesus is vouching for us. He fills the gap where we fall short. And so you, as we read this, we say, well, how can I be assured of this? How can, I, how can I know this? How can I know that I'm in the light of God? And it suggests that if we obey his commandments, we will know God and we will know his ways. So we seek to follow him in his path once more, by living as he longs for us to live. And something else is cool here. What we learn is the more faithful we are, the brighter the light shines. Not Jesus' light. His light is shining very bright, but our, we start to reflect him a little bit more, like a mirror. And when you have a mirror, I don't have one up here, but I have my hand, right? And all of a sudden, you see two sources of light, kind of. I'm reflecting off of this light. That is us. We start to reflect the true light of Christ. And so it gets brighter. And as we live faithfully, that light gets brighter, and we can start to see Jesus more clearer. You know how when it's dim, and you're like outside or something, and uh, you're like, is that you, Don? Is that Don? I can't tell if that's Don. And he comes closer. I'm like, I'm way off. That was Miles. How did I ever think that was Don? Darkness plays with our mind. It plays with our vision. But the brighter things are, the more clear they become. 
our faithfulness increases the light. It allows Jesus to come more fully into focus. The closer we are to him, the more clearly we see him and the more we know him. The end of chapter 1 and here at the beginning of chapter 2, it's calling us to be deeply honest, to be very honest with ourselves and with God, to be honest about our own sin in our lives, about the ways we've strayed, but also on our true level of faithfulness. We all long to be faithful. We all long to say we know God, but there are seasons in our lives when perhaps our life doesn't reflect that we do. And so this calls us to be honest. That first part might have talked about unity. This is calling us to fight for a purity of the gospel that is made real in our lives. The pureness of the light of Jesus to be made real in our lives. Not for us to muddy it with things of this world and by our sin as we stray, but to contend and seek to be faithful. Knowing we'll mess up, but knowing God will forgive us and push us forward closer to him again in this lifelong path of faith. Because Jesus longs for us to be in the light and the darkness flees in the presence of that light. So once we're honest, we can receive the good news that God forgives us, calls us back to him to follow him on that path to be more like him in every area of our lives, even those ones we have kept in the dark for far too long. So the questions in this section for us to consider together are, what might you be trying to hide from God? In what ways are we falling short with God's will for us? The encouragement is this. Don't let any feelings of guilt or shame or even true conviction which comes from the Holy Spirit stop us from naming what those things are and receiving God's loving embrace of grace surrounding that area of our lives right now. Don't let it stop you. Don't let that guilt stop you. Name it. Bring it out of the dark into the light so Jesus can do his redemptive work in you as you seek to live just as Jesus did. We seek to live not just a life of unity, but also a life of purity. All right, let's go to verse 7 through 17 here. A little bit bigger section for us. This will be the last one we read together this morning. John writes, Dear friends, and if you notice, he keeps saying, Dear friends, dear children, he doesn't want this message to come down harsh. He is proclaiming God's truth, which sometimes stings, but it's sometimes a good sting. But he's also doing it in a loving way. Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one that you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment is to love one another. It is the same message you've heard before. This is not new. Yet, in a way, it is also new because Jesus lived the truth of this commandment and you are also living it. For the darkness, it's disappearing. The true light, it is already shining. If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living 
and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. And I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because even though you may not know it, you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. The battle's already won. So do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for every, everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. They are not from the Father. They're from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what, what pleases God will live forever. When we love each other, Christ's light shines brighter. It can push the darkness back. Think about this in your own lives, those moments where you have been down in the dumps or you're just discouraged or you're just hurt. And then someone in your life shows you their love for you in a very tangible way. Maybe they make your favorite meal or just send you a nice card or text or your kid uh, who's only two and a half years old says, what's wrong daddy? Or me love daddy. <laughs> Crosby's been saying that a lot lately. Those true acts of love, oh they push the darkness away, don't they? And Jesus does that in all of our lives, doesn't he? He pushes the darkness back. We feel that warmth of love because acts of love, they're like logs on the fire. Now, it does kind of provide us, however, with a helpful test or a check in our own lives. Well, how are we doing at loving others? How are we doing at living out this great commandment that we read about and we know from the Gospels, from Jesus teaching it to us to love God with everything we have and to love the neighbor in that same way. How are we doing about that? Because if that pushes the darkness back and then we experience his light, we ought to long to do that. And all of us know that love and hate, they don't, they don't mix. They don't go together. So how are we doing at loving our brothers and our sisters in Christ? Because if we say we hate our brother or sister, we're not living in the light. We're not fulfilling this commandment. But most of us would, I don't think, would ever say we hate people. I think we mean that too. None of us are out there intentionally hating people. I know you guys. You are good people. <laughs> but hate, it takes a lot of sneaky forms. 
takes a lot of sneaky forms, and we don't usually put such a strong word on it, but if it's not love, then it's probably not enough. So some of those ways that it sneaks in is when we're being a bit judgmental or judgy towards others. That's not really a God-light-bringing thing we do, is it? And yet, we do that. We judge others. Or maybe we're being a, a negative influence, as this passage talks about, hey, if you're causing others to stumble, you're not living in his light. And so are we being a negative influence on others? Or have we maybe entered a season where we're being a little bit too selfish, and we're excluding others, and it's more about me and not helping them? Are we causing others to stumble by the things we care about that are from this world, but are not from God? A question I've asked myself over this year in regards to God's greater church to Christians across the globe, are more people being discipled by our political affiliation right now than by the gospel? Because I've been hearing a lot of chitter-chatter about politics, but not nearly as much about God's good word. Do we care more about the things of the world than the things of God? Are some of us caring more about our political affiliation, our view on certain political items, such as masks or vaccines or whatever comes out tomorrow in the news? or with race relations? Are we caring more about those things than the things of God? If Facebook is any indication, I don't want to answer that question because it discourages me. Our views and our strong grips on these things naturally don't lead to unity. They lead to division. And none of us ever claim that we are the ones causing division, but we also know that maybe we're also responsible. So this hard book here is encouraging us to consider this. What we post, what we say about these things, is that pointing people towards God or is it causing our brothers and our sisters to stumble? Is it pushing us towards unity or division? Have we pushed away some of our fellowship and our love and those things that make up the Christian church and we've forsaken those in the name of justice and truth? But we've actually just become a bully. I've seen it. I've had to mute a lot of people on my Facebook feed <laughs> that have been in my circles. And in some ways, I have seen that reality play out even in this community. We're not exempt from it. That's not our intention, but I've seen how that has happened. I've seen friends who are no longer as close as they once were because these things have pushed them away. And the love that once united them has been forsaken for the views on these other items. My heart aches because of that reality. So the question for us to consider before we post anything, before we say anything, before we, we do anything, am I pleasing God with what I am saying? Am I pleasing God with what I am doing? Is this bringing light or am I just adding to the noise that's already loud enough? Am I loving God and my neighbor by sharing this, by saying this, by posting this, or 
would I engage in this conversation face-to-face with a person down the pew from me? If you wouldn't, you probably shouldn't post it. And you may be wondering, how does this connect? The things of this world, they look, they are sneaky. And this is one I have seen take over God's people. And I'm here to say I've had enough. And I believe you've had enough too. So it is not pointing us back to God. Verse 17, this world, this earthly kingdom, all of its devices, all the things we are fighting for, it's all going to fade away. But God's kingdom will reign forever. That is what matters. That is what the enemy doesn't want us to focus on. It's his kingdom and drawing people into that truth, not these lesser truths. So what kingdom have you given your attention to lately? This letter implores each one of us, myself included, a course correct to loosen our grip on the things of this world and to grip all the more tightly to God and his ways and his loving community. A plea to contend not for division, but for peace, for unity, purity, and peace. What are those? Those are present in our baptismal vows. The rest of uh, John, 1 John 1 and 2 goes on with John presenting arguments against some of the false teachings of his day and talking about the things that were taking people away from God's truth and, and telling them lies. And, and he's trying to, to help people realize that the Holy Spirit was sent to equip us to discern truths from lies and good from evil. And then in Verse 24 of the second chapter, he says to remain faithful to what we've been taught from the beginning. For us, what this Bible teaches us. The term we use is this Bible is our final authority, meaning this has the say. This is our ultimate guide, for in it, it we, uh, Jesus Christ is most fully revealed to us. And the Holy Spirit will give us everything we need for discernment. Truths from untruths, helpful from unhelpful. And John calls us to walk in the light, both by his word and by his way. And when we do that, says we will be emboldened and have his courage. But if we stay or we drift in darkness, that's when we will shrink in shame. So do we want to boldly approach God's throne with courage? or shrieking in shame because, oh, maybe I wasn't living as he longed for me to. My encouragement, however, is this. We know drift happens in our walk with Christ. And this is a call to realign once again. A call back to our baptismal vows of living into our identity in Christ, that we have been made new, that we have been washed clean. These same vows we celebrated and proclaimed last week to seek the things that make for unity, purity, and peace, to let go of the things of this world, step forward and stand out for the sake of the kingdom cause by contending for that unity and that purity and that peace. So our final question of consideration is this. Where might the Holy Spirit be revealing within you between unity, purity, and peace where he's longing for you to go to work? 
I'm guessing there's one that stands out to you and go, yeah, that's the one. My encouragement is to focus on that this week. Next week, ask, ask yourself the same question. Unity, purity, peace. Maybe it's the same. This work usually takes a while. But get after it and trust in God. Because as you seek to follow him, his word tells us you will know God and you will know you are in God and that you are in his light. And the light of the world has overcome the darkness and will push that away. And you can proclaim boldly that you are standing for Jesus Christ and not the things of this world. May it be true for each and every one of us here in this place and at home today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this John who has given us this word. So full of wisdom and teaching and we reflect on it and we trust your Holy Spirit to reveal to us exactly what you need for us to hear. Lord, we pray that we will be emboldened to follow you and not to be discouraged or upset by the groanings that we hear or the, the, the arguments that maybe bubble up within us, but simply to rest in your presence and ask you, what do you have for me, God? I choose to follow you. And Lord, we give you so much thanks knowing that you fill the gap. Though we long to follow you, we will stray, but you will bring us back. May we feel your grace and your forgiveness in this place today. You fill those gaps and you fill our lives, Lord. You are truly what this life is about. Help us keep our eyes on the prize and not forget you. We thank you for making us strong in our weakness. We thank you that you are the one that we can seek because you're our ultimate gift, our ultimate treasure. You are the Lamb of God and you are so worthy, God. We proclaim your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.